One of my good friends uh, and co-pastors for a season, his name was Jake Anderson. And you guys actually met Jake at our launch party. He was the 6'3", Norwegian-looking fellow. He looked like a Viking who had shaved, just a big man. And Jake is from, born and raised from Minnesota. And if you don't know, people from Minnesota, they talk funny. They say funny things. They say stuff like, you betcha. And Jake didn't say that, but there's a few things Jake did say. One thing he would say is, oofda. He'd say, oofda. And it was just kind of a like an exclamation or a surprise, like, oh, you wrecked your car, you lost your job, oofda. He would call what we call a casserole, he'd say hot dish. Ooh, you got some hot dish? It's just one meal, and it's called a casserole. And oh, you don't have any casserole? Oofda, Jake would say. And so uh, he would say all these weird things. And there's one thing Jake said, and, and I don't know if it originated from Minnesota or not, but it was something that Jake always said, and I kind of caught on and have been saying it since then. He always talked about having skin in the game. That was a Jake-ism, a Jake saying, having skin in the game. And Jake would use that phrase to talk about people who were committed to a certain cause. To have skin in the game would be uh, to be invested in what will happen with a movement or group. It's to have a personal stake in an outcome. You know, in Scripture, you and I are called to have skin in the game. You and I are called to participate in what God is doing in this world and in this church. God desires for you to be a part of what he is doing on this planet. He wants you to be a part of his mission. He wants to use you. In Colossians, we're in a transitional section. Paul has thanked God for how he has been working in the life of the Colossians. He's prayed for them. He's exalted Jesus. And now we're about to get into the meat of the letter. But before we do that, Paul wants this church to know that he has skin in the game. He's invested in the church globally and locally with this specific body. And in telling them this, he hopes that they will mimic his posture towards the church. And so we're going to look at kind of three things. We're going to look at how Paul sees himself in relation to this church, what he's willing to endure for the sake of this church, and what he would call his mission, his purpose for this church. So turn to Colossians 1. Get out Colossians 1. We're going to be using the ESV translation. We're actually going to pick up at the end of the passage we read last week. And so if you want to be caught up, we've just, we're, we're only three messages in so far. You can listen to the two. But we're going to start actually on verse 22. We're going to start on verse 22. Chapter 1, verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul, last week we talked about this, Paul has just presented the gospel with them, to them, how God has reconciled them uh, himself back to his people through the death of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then he wants the Colossians to continue to persevere and to hold on to this gospel of hope. But there's a key word at the end there in verse 23. He says, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So you can underline that in verse 23. 
because Paul is going to then expound on that. We're going to get into what is Paul's ministry. Minister can be translated into servant. And this idea of servanthood, Paul's servanthood, Paul's ministry to the church becomes the focus of our section today. So you kind of see how those things are connected. He said, I'm a servant of the gospel. Let me tell you more about that and how it relates to you. So let's pick up in verse 24. We're going to read 24, chapter 1, 24, all the way to 2, 5. We're going to read the whole passage. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister. There's that word again, underline minister. According to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So there's a lot to unpack in this passage, but before we talk about anything else, I want to point out that Paul, again, right at the beginning of this passage, he's just said this, but Paul again calls himself a minister. Now, the term there is servant. He calls himself a servant, again, a steward. Now, before he was a minister of the gospel, a steward of the gospel, a servant of the gospel. But now, what does he call himself? A servant of the church, a servant of the body. Now, we talked about the term servant. It can be translated as steward, slave. It's one who executes the commands of another, one who renders service and help to another. This call from God that Paul has given him as a servant is a fundamental part of his identity. So if somebody came up to Paul and asked, who are you? Paul wouldn't fall back on his education. Paul wouldn't fall back on his notoriety. Paul wouldn't talk about his tent making. Paul would say, I am a servant of the gospel. I'm a minister. I'm a servant of the church. That is how Paul saw himself. That was a fundamental part of Paul's DNA. And so I asked the question to you, who are you? What is the fundamental, the most basic aspect of who you are? Now, you may say, uh, that's multifaceted. You know, I'm, I'm a mom. I'm, I'm a dad. You know, I'm an engineer. I'm a coach. I'm a pastor. Or do you say, I am a servant of the church, a steward of the gospel, commissioned to carry out an assignment by my master for the sake of others. 
We are servants. You are a servant. If you claim Christ, if you are a new creation, you are a servant. It is part of your DNA. It is who God made you to be. Now, in many ways, how you see yourself as a servant or not will determine whether or not you have skin in the game. I'll say that again. In many ways, how you see yourself as a servant or not will determine whether or not you have skin in the game. Now, they say in seminary to not use athletic analogies because not everybody can relate to them. But I'm going to go ahead. It's, it's just an easy one to talk about with this subject. When I was a freshman in college playing football, I was redshirted, which means that I had to dress for games. So I had to wear a helmet and shoulder pads, the whole uniform, but I sat on the sideline for the entire season. There was no intention of playing me, of turning in my red shirt so that I could play. So essentially, I was a spectator, and we would sit there in the freezing cold with jackets. We weren't allowed to sit down. We had to stand the whole game and cheer on our team. We were essentially spectators, and I could care less of whether we won or lost. I just didn't care. I wasn't really part of the team. I was a, a glorified cheerleader wearing pads. And, and it wasn't until the year that I started that I actually cared about what was going on. The next year when I was playing, I was invested. I, I very much cared whether we won or lost or, or how I played. I went from spectator to, to on the field. Now, in the church, there are spectators and there are servants. And, and I don't say that in a mean way, but in, in every church... There are people who watch, and then there are people who watch and participate in what God is doing. And I don't, I'm not here to bash the American church. God, I think God is working in the American church right now. I think in many ways he's purifying and maturing the church in America. But if you ask any pastor about their biggest struggle as a leader, they will often say, we have a lot of spectators, which is good, man. We want... We want people to come and hear the gospel. That's not a bad thing to have people in the crowd listening to the gospel. But they'll say it's hard to move people into the game. It's hard to get people into the game. To own your identity as a servant is to get in the game. It's to get dirty. It's to play. A servant will invest in the body. A servant will use their gifts to build up the body of Christ. Church becomes not just a place to be blessed. Man, when I come here, I am so blessed by what God is doing in and through this church. But it doesn't, it's not just a place to be blessed. It's a place to be a blessing and to participate in what God is doing in this world through this church in this city. Paul owns his role as a servant. It's fundamental to understanding this passage. Yet he also owns the struggle that comes with being a servant. Here's not the so much fun part. Look at verse 24. We're going to start kind of putting this together a little bit. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Paul knows to be a servant of the church will involve suffering for the church. He says, I rejoice because I suffer for your sake. 
Now, this is not the kind of message that's fun to preach and people get super excited about, but, but suffering will happen to servants. And Paul rejoices in that because he's suffering for the sake of the church. And he, and he says this really weird thing that's very debated in academic circles. He says, he adds in my flesh, I'm willing, uh, he, says, he says, in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. Now, what the heck? Does that mean? <laughs> now, some take this as a reference to a common Jewish belief that, that God's people had to suffer a fixed amount, like there was a, a quota to fill of suffering. And once that quota was filled, then the Messiah could come back. Now, I don't, I'm not sure if that's what's happening here. It could be. Uh, I think Paul is maybe talking about he is suffering in the way Jesus has, but he has not yet suffered to the extent that Jesus has. Paul has yet to lay down his life for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church. Regardless, this is what Paul is saying. Paul is letting the church know that, that suffering is a reality for the servants of the church. We don't suffer to, to be saved. We don't suffer because somehow the cross wasn't enough suffering, and so we got to make up for it. But if, if we follow Jesus, if we've put our faith in Jesus, if we've been saved, if we call ourselves a servant, we will come across suffering. We will struggle. Look at verse 29 to 2.1. He says, for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. And two, one, he says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Servants are willing to suffer and struggle for the sake of the church. They see it as part of the job description. To be a servant of God in the church is to expect, accept, and own the struggle not to run from it. Sometimes in the church, we want to pray to God to, to make everything comfortable. That's our prayer. God, make, make everything comfortable and easy in my life so I really don't need faith in you, but, but we're given suffering. We're given a struggle. We are servants willing to suffer. Are you willing to struggle or suffer for the sake of the body? for the sake of the church. Some of you are like, yeah, I serve in the nursery. I do kids ministry. Some of you are like, I'd rather be in a Roman prison like Paul than do kids ministry. Are you willing to struggle or suffer as a servant of the church? And now it's not that, that faithfulness to the gospel, to the church entails suffering in every instance. I'm not saying that being a Christian is all suffering and nothing. Guys, we're gonna, we're gonna have fun. We're going to experience joy here. We're going to do baptisms in a couple weeks. We're going to stand up and cheer and celebrate what God's doing. We're going to eat cake. We're going to have parties. We're going to have deep friendships. There's going to be restored lives. There's going to be cake and marriages and cake. But there will be suffering and struggle if you take... <laughs> With some cake. I mean, you can go to cake if you're struggling or suffering. But if you take this call seriously, it's just, it's part of the deal. Now, it would be dishonest as a pastor to compare the, the suffering and persecution that others deal with around the world with what we face in America today. We don't, 
We don't suffer to the extent that others do. And anybody telling you that is just a lie. I mean, we're made fun of on TV. That's, that's it. We may not get a promotion or something like that because somebody doesn't like the fact that we're a Christian. But our lives are not on the line on a daily basis. But if you own this, you're going to invite some level of, of suffering and pain into your life that you're maybe not used to. That's just the truth. If you step up and if you serve and you get in the game, it's not going to be easy on one side because Satan loves when you're on the bench. But when you get in the game and you get dirty, he doesn't like that. And so he's going to do everything he can to discourage you, to frustrate you, to get you on the sideline. On the other side, I think God sovereignly uses suffering. I think God can be like, man, if you want to be a servant of mine, if you want to be used by me, I'm going to allow the struggle to manifest in your life so that you'll grow in maturity. You'll grow in perseverance and wisdom and patience and faith for a fruitful ministry tomorrow. Regardless, to to own that is to own Suffering. I, I wouldn't be surprised for the families who, who left Creekside to, to plant central, to kind of do something intentional, do something gospel-centered. If you weren't dealing with some kind of struggle in your life, in your marriage, or it could be just associated with this. It may not be what you thought it was. It may have been harder. You know, setting up chairs is fun the first couple times, or setting up all this is fun the first couple times, but after that, it's not so fun. It's, it's, it can be a struggle. Paul is a servant who suffers, but he suffers with a mission. All right, now we're going to put all this together. So we have he's a servant who suffers. Let's read 24 through 27. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for, this, for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister. I'm a servant who suffers according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make, this is his purpose, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's a servant willing to suffer for a purpose, And the first part of that purpose, the first part of that mission is to make the word of God fully known. He calls the the message a mystery that's been hidden for ages, that's now revealed to the saints. What does that mean? Key, Key parts, aspects of God's redemptive plan were once hidden, but now through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, they're revealed. They're brought to light. For example, in, at the end of verse 27, he says, this is the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Before, God was among his people in Israel. We talked about that at the beginning, right? God was among his people, Israel. He even indwelled some of them. But now, what's been revealed is God will work directly and personally in the lives of his people. And that presence will be a down payment, a security deposit 
for the hope that is to come. We can be assured of our salvation. That is the hope of glory. Furthermore, God won't just be with Israel anymore. God will be with the Gentiles, which for most of us in this room, we say amen to that. God has come to save us too, us as well. That is the news, that is new news to everyone. Paul is a newsboy. Now, he's not part of the Australian Christian alt-rock band that Caleb is for some reason obsessed with. But Paul is out there saying, extra, extra, read all about it. Here is new news. God has come to live in you. There is a hope and assurance in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is Paul's mission to proclaim that gospel so that people may become part of God's family. But it doesn't end there. Look at verses 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Paul's mission is to proclaim the gospel, but it's also to admonish that's, that's correct when people are going towards destruction and train people and teach people to follow Jesus to maturity. He wants the church to grow. And so it's this idea, man, we accept you the way you are as a church, but we don't want you to stay there. We want you to grow and mature in Christ. That is, that is Paul's desire. This process of proclaiming and leading people to maturity It's a term we all know. It's just called discipleship. It's discipling people, and that is Paul's mission. In fact, he is toiling and struggling with supernatural energy. He is allowing God to fill his life with energy and courage and gumption to to share the gospel, this mystery that has been revealed, but to also train up people to maturity. And, And in 2, 1 through 4, it's just Paul applying it to this specific church. Look at 2, 1 through 4. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments." He struggles as a servant of God so that their hearts are encouraged. He wants them to be courageous in the face of false teaching and tension in the church. He says, I want you to grow and be knit together. I want the church to be woven together by love. That's important because we can agree on things theologically in this room. That doesn't mean we're unified. Love, gospel-centered love, is what binds a church together. And he wants them to know all there is to know of Jesus, his work, his plan of redemption, who we are called to be in light of who Jesus is, so that when false teaching rears its ugly head, they can stand strong, so their faith will not be diluted. Paul wants them to know Christ, but he also wants them to mature and grow in Christ. Paul is a servant willing to suffer to disciple others. We, you, I am a servant, willing to suffer, to disciple others. 
Now this call of proclaiming the gospel, this call of leading people to maturity isn't for professionals. It isn't for perfect people. Let me, let me talk about the second one. I, I was talking with a young man this week and he's, he's struggling with his faith and um, he's like, that's why I've just kind of stepped back. I'm not using my gifts. I'm not serving. I'm really not helping anyone. I'm really not sharing the gospel because uh, I don't really feel qualified right now. And that's, that's, that's not God. That's Satan encouraging you to get on the sidelines. He has you where he wants you, not participating in what God is doing. If we wait till we're qualified, we will be waiting a long, long time. Now, there may be a season where you need to step out, but for most of us, those seasons are very rare. We need to endure. We need to, to be used by God to make disciples. The other one we say is just for the professionals. It's for the people who are really good at this. That's just a lie. If you claim Christ biblically, you are a missionary, you are a minister. If you claim Christ, you are a missionary, you are a minister. Now, I know your neighborhood isn't as exotic as, as Africa or South America, but God has placed you there on purpose. You are not on your block. You are not at your job. You are not with your group of friends by accident. God desires for you to share Christ in those environments. That is your mission field. Your school is your mission field. Your kid's soccer team, those parents are your mission field. Where he has you is your mission field. It's not that all missionaries are Christians. It's that all Christians are missionaries. We've said that over and over again. And so we, we need that call to proclaim the gospel. We need to be intentional with sharing the gospel. And we've talked about this. You begin with prayer. You pray for people. You listen to people. You ask good questions. You eat with people. You invite people over for dinner. I remember I, I told somebody, I said that in a sermon once, and, and this lady was like, our home is our spiritual haven. We don't want evil people there. And it just blew my mind. Your home is to be used by God for ministry. Now, you may need to clean it up, some of you. I've been to your houses. <laughs> Doug, no, I'm joking. <laughs> no, Peyton, you do a good job, Peyton. <laughs> yeah, um, your house is very clean. Our house, we always had God clean, but your house is to be used by God to eat with people, serve people. It's about to be beautiful outside. Everybody's going to be outside this summer. Join them, get to know those people, and then share the mystery of God that has now been revealed in Christ Jesus, that you have God working in you. You can talk about that and share the hope of glory that you have. Furthermore, take every opportunity to find people to disciple, work to see people grow in all wisdom and understanding so that they may reach maturity in Christ. Read God's word with other people. Help others navigate life with wisdom. Help others worship and love Jesus. Teach others to pursue holiness. Warn them away from destruction. You are called to disciple. You are called to make disciples. You need to have somebody in front of you, encouraging you, pouring into you, admonishing you, correcting you, 
building into you and you need somebody behind you that you're doing all of those same things with. You're encouraging them. You're reading God's word together. You're praying. You're confessing sin. You need somebody in front of you, behind you. Some of you may be like, I, I don't have anybody to disciple. Man, then, then, then open yourself up. We, we got 20 kids downstairs. Many of those have yet to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Share the gospel with them. Train them. We have this weird aversion. I know I made a joke about it earlier, but I'm going to sidestep a little here, but we have a weird aversion to kids' ministry in the United States. We want to drop our kids off and go to church. Man, that's, that's crazy to me. You know what you're doing down there when you're, you're teaching kids about Jesus? You're doing God's work, man. You're doing God's work. You're discipling. You're evangelizing. You're shepherding the next generation, the largest mission field on this planet. Our people under 18. And so if you're like, man, we don't, we, we, I don't have somebody to disciple, uh, I, I got 20 of them downstairs that would love for you to be there. Would love for you to be there. Sorry, I'm going to step back into what I was preaching about. Look at verse 5. For though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He says, I'm away, yet I'm with you. You ever felt like that? Man, I'm, we're separated by distance, but my heart is with you because I care for you and I love you and I rejoice. He started this passage saying, I rejoice because I suffer for your sake. And he ends this passage as, I rejoice in what God is doing in you. He's, he's increasing your faith. He's building you up as a church. Are you hearing Paul's heart? Paul is saying, I, I, I'm a servant and I'm willing to suffer to build up the body of Christ. I'm willing to suffer to disciple others. So my questions to you are is, do you see yourself as a servant? Do you own the title of servant? And if you do, are you willing to suffer for the sake of the body? Are you willing to struggle for the church that God loves? Because the reality is, is he suffered to the greatest extent for our sake. To establish us as a church and to build us up. Are you willing to make disciples? Are you willing to proclaim the gospel that has been revealed to us? That was formerly misunderstood or not completely known. Are you willing to lead people to maturity in Christ? Jesus saved you to get in the game. Jesus saved, that's, that's, he saved you to get in the game. Ephesians 2.8 says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, you are his masterpiece, you are his poem, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You have been saved from sin and death, but you have been saved to something. You have been saved to his good purposes, 
to be a part of what he is doing in this world. He has a plan for you mapped out, but it involves you jumping in to what he is doing in the church and in his world.